Welcome, movie lovers. Today, we go back in time for a tale as old as time as we dissect the 1991 version of Beauty and the Beast. Stay tuned. Welcome to Popcorn Talk, featuring movie discussion, news, and interviews. Popcorn Talk. We talk movies. And now, here's Popcorn Talk's Anatomy of a Movie. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. Do not be confused. We are not yet doing the 2017 version of Beauty and the Beast. We are going back in time, <laughs> revisiting a classic. Um, and we have Dimitri Panos today on the panel. Hey, movie fans. Very excited about this. <laughs> Dimitri was actually alive when this movie came out, unlike one of our panelists, <laughs> Becca Brown. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> hey, listen. So was I. So was I, okay. thankfully, okay? Yeah. That I saw it as a kid, so that's what counts. My parents showed it to me when I could, like, comprehend, kind of. That is the voice of Becca Brown. Yeah. And Marissa Serafini, who was also alive yes, when I this was. movie came out. But did yes, you I see was. it at the theaters when it came out? I, I did, did not. not. not with, I was not too poor to go to the movies then, <laughs> to be fair. It's a true story. Yes, not with my parents. Um, but I love Beauty and the Beast. It is, like, literally my all-time favorite Disney film. So I'm excited. I'm really excited to talk about this film. You had no idea. Well, uh, as always, I don't think we're going to spoil much, but I'll give the spoiler warning anyway. Uh, you know, if you haven't seen the movie, what are you doing? Yeah. Go see the movie. What are you doing with your life? Or just at least, uh, you know what, be, be pleasantly surprised when you see the new one. Um, but overall impressions, we'll start with um, our welcome guest for today, Becca Brown. Um, well- <laughs> oh my goodness. We're going to try to do as little laughing today as possible, Becca. I just got really excited there, so that's why I squeaked. But I was watching it last night, and I realized, uh, like, just how naive I was as a kid to a lot of Disney movies uh, and the storylines that are, like, within. Um, I understood and comprehended a lot more. Are you you talking about the the broom and uh, them making it? Yes. Okay. All right, so, yes. Okay, so there's sexual undertones you weren't quite privy to at, when you were six years old. Yeah, no, I, I didn't understand. And then I was like, that seems a little PG-13 to me. But, okay, talk but about... What did you think of the movie? Well, yeah, your love, when you were six years old, what made you fall in love with this movie? Music. Music. The music, for sure, because I'm a person who loves music and... I can listen to the album on repeat all day. <laughs> Marissa. Um, I love this film. I think that the moral lesson and the beauty of it all is that the 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 thought of that inner beauty outshines everything else. It would rather be the physical appearance and like who you really are on the inside. I think that's such a great message that is still relevant today, even twenty five years later from this film. And I, I I really related to Belle, the character, because she was a bookworm. She was that shy one. And I was like, also a big bookworm, and I didn't talk to people. I was kind of weird and considered the outcast, you know, growing up. So, like, I completely related to Belle. And plus, the music is just great. I've personally been part of two different Beauty and the Beast productions. And so I can, I've literally have heard this story over and over and over again like at least more than 100 times just in production and I never once got tired of it and I realized like you know what I love this story and even the film where it all you know originated from I think is 
brilliant in the fact that I can list, literally listen and watch this movie over and over and over again and still not get sick of it. Yeah, it's it's a strong film with a great message. Huh? Dimitri? Yeah, I mean, when this movie came out, <clears throat> um, this came out at such an amazing time for movies. Movies were made for fun, and this meant so much for Disney. Uh, ironically, since you both mentioned movies, uh, or music, I'm sorry, uh, this movie was never intended to be a musical. Uh, in its opening, as, as, as uh, in its early production stages, and it is a tale as old as time. Beauty and the Beast is a story which has been known even more so than than Little Mermaid. And you have to think about the time that this was coming out as well, and and what was going on at Disney as far as their regime. Uh, Michael Eisner was the head of the company. Uh, he had brought in Jeffrey Katzenberg. Okay. Uh, Katzenberg, who is still relevant in animation today with DreamWorks Animation running that outfit. But basically, Disney itself is not the Disney of today, okay? I'm not sure Beauty and the Beast would be made today. It could be, I mean, because of John Lasseter taking over the animation things. But today, Disney is a, for lack of better words, it's a factory, Okay, yeah. they're they're a factory. They they're a franchise factory. They have Marvel. They've got Lucas Films. Uh, you know, they have their Pixar brand, and so we're you know we're getting Cars three. Um, you know, th- thankfully the animation brand, which hasn't made you know, we've got Frozen, we've had Tangled, uh, we've had some really good movies coming out of there. Um, you know, which is blending hand drawn. Okay, but that's because of John Lasseter. But back back in the eighties, back in the nineties, when Michael Eisner was running the company, you know, it's hard to believe that at the time Disney was releasing R rated movies. They had a whole slew of them. Um from their touchstone division, uh, which was releasing movies such as uh uh, Stakeout, uh, Outrageous Fortune, Down and Out in Beverly Hills, okay? Uh, these are all R-rated movies. Pretty Women, people seem to forget, is an R-rated movie, mm-hmm. you know? And none of the movies that I just mentioned spawn sequels. This wasn't about franchise. This was about being creative. This was become, coming up with a concept. Well, they took that idea and brought that into animation. In fact, there's a great story where Michael Eisner, upon hiring Katzenberg to come in, Brings him into his office. He goes, look out that window. You see that building over there? It's like, yeah. He goes, that's our animation building. It's like, okay. He goes, you like animation? It's like, you sure. He goes, good. You're going to fix it. <laughs> and he's like, that was like his first week on the job. He's like, okay. And with Beauty and the Beast, it's just a culmination. It was a passing of the guard. I mean, Disney is always noted for their wonderful animation, mm-hmm. right? From Bambi, from Snow White, which won the Academy Award, which actually, if if it hadn't become popular, we wouldn't have Disney, you know? So Snow White, uh, Pinocchio, Dumbo, uh, all of these related to Lady and the Tramp, but animation was waning. It really was. And what Disney was able to do with the likes of Roger Rabbit, who framed Roger Rabbit, which, which burst through and created new technology... For, for movies, and then they're like, hey, this is a viable source. And then, thankfully, The Little Mermaid hit, 
and The Little Mermaid was a beautiful film, and it combined music. It was a musical. And so leading into this new this new regime of young animators taking over from the old, being taught from the old, coming in, and the collaboration put for Beauty and the Beast and for Disney was amazing. Like, I remember when Beauty and the Beast came out, the, the accolades being thrown in this movie, being nominated for Best Picture at a time when there were only five Best Picture nominees. Mm-hmm. And for this to be one of the nominations, you know, what it did for Disney, what it did to boost animation, it really clearly, you know, the, the movie is enthralling. And today, it still is beautiful to watch. The music is, is still as catchy, you know, whether it's Gaston and things like Gaston, or whether it's Belle, mm-hmm. or yeah. Till as old as time. You know, the movie has stood the test of time. Uh, amazingly so and and it doesn't lose its luster uh in fact i think it just becomes better with age yeah. so well uh you know i i like the sort of completion of this movie that that it's it completes disney's mission he, he wanted to make it in the 30s and the 50s but he never he never went about it um some people cite that the um the 47 version of beauty and the beast from from france uh kind of not prohibited him, but he was like, okay, it's been told, so I don't want to tell my version now. Um, and so, you know, I, th- I think that's what obviously prevented it from there. And then so now it kind of completes that circle, even, even though he never really got he never got to see it. Right. Um, but that isn't an interesting fact for me, is that uh, the original story of what Beauty and the Beast actually is to what the Disney version is, much like most of Disney, two completely different things. I mean, the original, what fascinates me, is very much like a Cinderella story where she's got uh, sisters and they're kind of mean to her um, and whatnot. And, um, yeah, so so I, it's interesting how they weaved it and made it completely different yet beautiful in the same sense. And I think I would personally actually would love to see a, a blending of the two because I think there's something beautiful in both of them. But that's just my own personal uh, want. I guess. Yeah, and I I really enjoyed the thing about this f- particular film because we had the, the lyricist Howard Ashman that this whole film is basically a metaphor for his life, which for people yeah. who may not know, but he actually found out he had AIDS at the beginning stages of this film and when it was written into the 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 songs and the lyrics and just the the overall meaning of this the inner beauty because it was more so he was afraid of how other people would perceive him especially back in the 80s when AIDS and HIV was such a a taboo thing people didn't want to talk about it and he was afraid of how the society would see see, see him mm-hmm. with this and it really just translates as a metaphor for this film yeah absolutely the other thing too um, is Howard Ashman coming on board along with Lincoln, like they had just great success with Little Mermaid. Okay, and Little Mermaid too is the movie that really started where people started to pay attention to Disney and animated movies again. You know, you can go to the Little Mermaid, young and old, and, and you, yeah. you walk out feeling enchanted. Okay, you you, you walk out feeling good, and it also started it planted that seed, which Beauty and the Beast did so well, is making a. A, a, a free spirit princess 
you know, coming up with a woman character, or a female character <clears throat> that that that's going to think on her own, uh, uh, get through life, and 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 be a take charge kind yeah. of person, which Belle like just takes it up a few notches from from Ariel, but Megan and Ashman together as a team for writing partner in music. You're right, the metaphor for what that is. But again, the music is just so beautiful. And it's definitely one of those few animated movies that I remember seeing uh, in a theater where, like, after, like, the opening number bell, like, people applauded in the theater. Um, You know, and there are stories, we'll get into it a little bit more, like, where it played in the New York uh, Film Fest, and it wasn't even a finished print. Uh, 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 it, but people were applauding, and you knew that you had this magic, yes, this movie is. magic that Howard Ashman, uh, you know, really contributed uh, a lot to. He, at least at the very least, he was able to see the work in progress print before passing away. But um, yeah, Marissa, you, you, I think you really bring it. You know, you hit it on the head. For him, it was a, a metaphor, and and the the people during production. They had no idea that he was sick at all. Uh, no idea whatsoever. You know, he kept that. Well, think about it. The, there's, the, there's three things at the time, right? Um, I mean, I, Becca, I'm sure would be hard-pressed. But this was, you were either gay, you were a drug addict, um, or what was the third thing? Shit. Sex with monkeys? Well, we're there talking AIDS, right? Yeah. yeah. That's, that was yeah. the stereotype, yeah. It was either you were gay... You did drugs or sex with monkeys. Yeah. Um, and obviously we know that to be very not true today, but that yeah. it, it was such a stereo... It, um, it was such a taboo, to borrow your word, um, disease that, yeah, people didn't talk about it and they didn't know anything about it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I can imagine him not saying anything. Yeah. Um, for fear of that. Yeah. Uh, Phil, you brought up an interesting point, too, regarding story. You know, I, I believe it was the producer, Don Hahn, uh, who talked about story-wise. What do you do with Beauty and the Beast? Because so much of it is, you know, uh, you know, you have your woman, you have your beast, they're at a dinner table, will you marry me? No! Leaves. <laughs> right? There's not a whole hell of a lot going on in the story. How do you turn this into a feature? And how do you, know, do you, do, how dark do you want to go? How dark do you not want to go? And this is all before bringing in music. You know, what are you going to do? And all the iterations just never really worked and there were so many changes in the creative gene pool let's call it yeah. people were getting fired like nah, this yeah. isn't working and even the directors yeah. <laughs> to me that's like a, that's like they were hired on as interim directors they weren't even like they're too zilling yeah, they weren't even they weren't called directors for the longest time until they deemed it okay. Well, you're going to be the directors of this. You'll be called, even though they were doing that job. <laughs> well, here's what I um, this is kind of new to me, but it was the first movie to use a screenwriter for an animated feature um, in Disney, yeah, at least. Yeah. And this was never, this typically they do it through storyboards um, rather than scripted form. And interesting, I, I I didn't quite understand that because you're talking Linda Wolverton, yeah, yeah, simply because to me, animated or not, it should have a script, you know, and then you storyboard. I don't know, it's 
partly because that's the way I've been taught it my whole life. <laughs> um, right. But it's, it just seems that's like a, such a strange idea that you wouldn't have a script for an animated movie. Well, yeah, and it was interesting. Um, I just listened to an interview with the, the director of the Kung Fu Panda movies, and even though that's DreamWorks, that's not Disney, but the, even she mentioned in most animated films, if not all of them, they usually just storyboard everything out scene by scene. And then there's and then you kind of put it together like a puzzle, and then at the end you get a final result, such as your movie. There's they usually originally don't start with the script. It's more like the concept yeah. ideas of putting scenes together. And I think it's interesting that, and I think also that's why this film works so well because there was already a fleshed out story that they had to work off of yeah. that made it more complete. <clears throat> I, Go ahead. I was just gonna say that I couldn't imagine like not having a script to go off of and just like drawing something out on like for scene by scene well organization wise and part of the reasoning for that is and Linda Wolverton learned this early on uh, especially when you talk about um, I believe I believe it might have been Chris Sanders who was the story editor so you come up with storyboard you come up with your ideas as yeah. what, to what you want so this movie well a couple of things happened here the animators were kicked off the lot. They were kicked out of their Cush building uh, in Burbank, and they were moved into uh, a warehouse Okay, uh, that was off the lot. And so you would figure that, yeah, they were like, Jesus, like we feel like the bastard stepchilds. Like, what, what's going on here? But the blessing and the curse of that is, is that it actually drew, <laughs> pun intended, it drew the animators closer together. Physically, and they had basically they could be a little more casual, a little more lax because they weren't within the studio system. So creatively, which is what you want, uh, they 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 meshed. They just got along together very well. Okay, and this is a brand new crop of animators coming in. When you're doing a story for an animated movie. A lot of it changes um, constantly because a lot of it's all storyboarded out. And it's like, well, what if we do this, okay, coming in? And, and what if we change the scene so it's on this perspective, whatever? So that means there's going to be a change in the storytelling, right? So when Linda Wolverton comes along, <clears throat> she has this script for Beauty and the Beast. This is my script? Okay. And constantly, every day she came in, she noticed, she would, well, wait, wait. That no, wait, that's not in the script. Wait, how are you doing this? She was getting into fights with like the story editor all the time. He's like, Well, no, we had to change this, we had to do this. And she's like, No, but that's my script, you can't do that. She, from an animation perspective, she had no idea how the world worked. Uh, the head of animation at the time, who Katzenberg had running it, um, he basically said, look at you guys, I'm putting you in the same office. And they're like, okay, maybe not the best idea, but it turned out to be the mega best idea because each learned from the other. And Linda Wolverton's like going, when he would take her around, she was just going, oh, okay, I get it. Okay, yeah, okay. Yeah. She worked, she, con you know, she, she adapted her talents to, to and 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 look what she was able to look what they were able to accomplish and she she got it they became the best of friends and working colleagues and to me that's such a great story because 
it could have gone the other way. If she'd stuck to her guns, you know, we wouldn't have gotten the Beauty and the Beast that we get today. Absolutely. I love yeah. that. And good for her, especially being, like, the first female sc- screenwriter on Absolutely. an animated film that's, that became such as successful as this one. But even back then, when, like, it, I mean, it is still kind of a relevant issue today, but, like, women back then, especially in the industry, that's so hard to stand your ground. Working against animators that she hasn't really worked with and just in the industry itself, being that the one strong woman to stand up for herself. Yeah, I, I, I agree. You know, I agree with you. And I think because she was in animation and because they were off lots, because they were in this special, let's call it this soup of, like, everybody having to work together. So she was able to check her ego aside for a little bit and say, oh, okay, I understand. Yeah, and the story editor is able to check his, you know, they mm-hmm. all collaborated to do that. And you're, But you're right. You know, there were, apparently there were some, uh, as I heard, very passionate discussions <laughs> about which way the story was going to go. Uh, but you're right, Marissa. She she was a woman, uh, and she wasn't an animator. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and you know, being a screenwriter, uh, not the easiest thing at the time. Some could argue that today, but uh, she stayed through, and she did what any good person should do. Let me. I want to do this for the good of the project. I'm going to stick with this. And she came out being a much better, more creative person for it, as well as the story editor and everybody else. Well, so it, interesting. It kind of reminds me of Saving Mr. Banks, mm-hmm. that oh, movie, in the sense because that that movie's sort of a fictionalized behind the scenes look at yes. Mary Poppins, and you know, it's just interestingly enough, like with, with that movie, Mary Poppins. The end result is so fantastic, but maybe the making of it not the most pleasant at all times. Um, you know, and, and so obviously the, the reason why that movie was made is because the, the, the going was rough. And it would be interesting to see sort of, uh, I don't know, saving Mr. Be- Beast? Because <laughs> um, cause it is, a, I, I do find similarities in both stories. Yeah. You know, because. Um, I mean, the historical context of Mary Poppins at the same yeah it's, it's just a lot of similarities to me absolutely yeah. I, and I love that because even in to keep talking about uh, Saving Mr. Banks like she stuck so hard because she wanted to make sure one character had the proper ending and it was more of an ode to her personal father in her real life and that just adds heart and sentimentality that makes the ending more impactful and I think that was kind of the same thing with this film with like make these characters true to themselves and have heart and also sentimentality yeah because I, I feel like if someone else changes it it might change the tonality of characters and just how they movie ends and right. how we remember it at the end of it. I think like if had she not stuck to her guns, it would have been a different film. Well, what I love to, you know, to an earlier point of yours, Dimitri, you said, you know, how do you sort of flesh out the story when you basically have two people, will you marry me, will you marry me? No. Well, no. Uh, <laughs> no. What, what I like, you know, that they were able to incorporate elements from the 47 version and um, with the notion of uh, if you've ever seen that movie, there's like hands moving in the castle, so the castle becomes animated. Right. Um, and it too has sort of this villain character, or, um, whatever you want to call him, and that essentially becomes 
all all the items in the castle, and that becomes Gustav in this version. So they just took those ideas and made them more um, prominent. It's so. it's funny because uh, like watching it again, watching it as a kid versus watching it as an adult. I was um, I kept thinking about how like watching it as a kid that um, I always thought of Beast more as a villain than Gaston, and now I think of it as the in like the opposite way. So you think the the, the Beast is more of a villain? a villain? Yeah, but now I'm like, oh wait, scary. Well, because he's scary. It was, he was scary is, to me. Gaston is the antagonist. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I actually, you know, quick. I, I do want to talk about you know we're talking about a lot about the history, but I want to go into opinion just for one one second. Talk comparing the Beast and Gaston because in a way. Uh, they're both narcissistic. They're both mm-hmm. were, were at one point good looking, right? Um, their their heads are so inflated they think everybody works for them. Um, yeah. So, you know, it's interesting. Like, they, they, um, I do want to know, like, why is the beast better than him? Oh. I'm going to defer ladies first. But, oh, okay. yeah. Well, the thing is, it's like when you watch Gaston and the Beast like side by side, really, is that, yeah, Gaston, his head was inflated, but you never saw moments of him like actually being a good person or him caring about someone else or him like having that moment of softness. Whereas the Beast, you saw how he treated, treated people. He saw how he kind of like had a soft side. He gave Belle a room. He cared for her well-being at the end, even though he came across gruff. But you saw the soft moments, and he has heart underneath it. He has those layers. Gaston was just a one-note character, where the Beast was way more layered. To know that at the end, Beast is redeemable, and in the end, he becomes the protagonist because you're rooting for him. i got to take this a step further. The main difference is... There was no curse placed on Gaston. Okay. The oh. beast becomes the beast because he's being punished. Okay. He was a he was maybe he was as bad as Gaston was, but the whole reason why he is a beast and why that becomes an enchanted castle is because the old woman wants to see his character and his character comes through in flying colors. He's an ass. He is not a nice person, the beast, okay? He gets this curse, and he has to live in this castle as this hideous, scary beast. And he he learns the reason why he has this sympathy, this empathy towards, towards Belle, is because he's had time of reflection. He's had time alone. Um... He, he 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 realizes that you know this is a this is a thread to the story. He realizes the errors of his ways. He he knows that he was a bad person, and he sees that's what I was. But as the beast, as he matures, as he comes older, as he becomes older, he becomes wiser, and he reads all these books. He has a better sense of what it is to be a good person. Not a good beast, but a good person. So Belle comes along, trades places with Pops, and she is the epitome of beauty. But not just beauty. It comes from within as well. She's headstrong. Mm -hmm. She's smart. 
Okay, she reads. She loves the library. She okay, she you know, and as she learns about the beast, it's you know what. Under that gruff exterior, there is a charming man. You know that there, there's something charming about this thing, and yeah. that's what you fall in love with. It's not just necessarily the looks that are important, but Beast has had time of reflection. Where Gaston, nobody's been around to punish him. Nobody's been around to show him the errors of his ways. He was never cursed. He just goes through life thinking he is the best. He is the sexiest. And he is right. He should marry Belle because he's the best man on the planet. Well, also so, the thing is, it, like, no one tells Gaston no. Yeah, no one is right. no challenging Gaston. There's a whole freaking musical number <laughs> dedicated to Gaston. It's yeah. like, literally everyone reveres him. Yes. And that's the thing, where with Beast, like, people have respect for the Beast, but they also treat him like a human being. That's the moral and they, story. Yeah. And they treat Gaston friends. like a god. But, but they treat him as a human being at the end of the movie. Other than that... That castle and the beast is something to be feared. Where he's trying to shake the reputation of being, you know, fear and loathsome towards towards people, towards humanity. But he's at that time. And what Belle is able to do is she's able to melt that down. And he has his epiphany. He has his arc at the end that's what makes the ending of the animated of this animated movie so earned and heartfelt and emotional and again thematically it transcends like it brought disney into the age where adults aren't ashamed to go see animated movies like who framed roger rabbit did was you know it blended the live action you know, with with animation, much like Mary Poppins, when you brought up, but it brought it up to you know Robert Zemeckis and Company, you know, yes. Pete's Dragon. Yeah. But it 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 gave a tangibility to the animation. Roger Rabbit was a real character, along with Jessica Rabbit and all the other tunes in Toontown. Okay, when you go into Little Mermaid, hand drawn, it's very beautiful, but we're seeing. You know, they're making leaps and bounds from The Great Most Detective, which is an amazing... It's such a good... If you're a Sherlock Holmes fan, how can you not love The Great Most Detective? All these animators worked on these previous films. The Black Cauldron, okay, which, uh, if memory serves, Tim Burton worked on The Black Cauldron. He was a Disney animator. That's what he wanted to do. So by the time they have been honing their talents. They worked on Little Mermaid, and now Beauty and the Beast, they're able to take all of their experience to make this beautiful movie that has themes, that has that transcend kids' movies. To be nominated for Best Picture says, you know what? Dates were going out on this movie without kids! Like, men and women were, were going to Beauty and the Beast on a Saturday night. They'd go to the movies, they'd have dinner, and they'd go, let's go see Beauty and the Beast. You know, the soundtrack was 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 selling amazingly, you know, and so that's what Beauty and the Beast did for Disney. And it led them to do movies like Lion King. It animation for that for that window meant that it isn't it ain't just for kids anymore. And we don't have to be dark to do it. We don't have to be Ralph Bakshi. You know, we don't have to be heavy metal rated R for it to be an adult. We can have a heartwarming movie. That thematically in a story that resonates with all ages. 
So, and that's what Disney was focused upon. And it teaches all ages, like, a different life lesson depending on how a person's mind works watching the movie um, at any given age. Rebecca, you said something too, and we've all had it happen here. Uh, we grow, you've just had yeah. a birthday. You know, so with age comes a little bit of wisdom. You can see a movie when you're 10, 12. Like Star Wars as an 11 year old and Star Wars as a you know, 30 something or whatever, it could be two different movies. Yeah. You know, thematically, you just understand a lot more. Or, you, know, you, you get it. But that, to me, is a sign of a classic. Or you understand different things each time you rewatch the movie. Yeah. Like, you get more out of it. Yeah. Marissa, how old were you when you... Do you remember how old you might have been when you first saw when it? When I first saw yeah. it? Or, like, when I comprehended it? There's a difference. <laughs> so Very true. I was young, but at least I was alive. <laughs> Um, probably when I was younger, when I, like, first comprehended, I was, like, probably five. Okay. When I, like, remember watching it over and over. Was it one of uh, the first movies that you watched on video or something? Or did you oh, see yeah. it on Oh, yeah. I watched, like, all the Disney movies right. like, on VHS over right. and over and over right. again. This one and Pocahontas were. Like, the, the strong females I loved mm-hmm. <laughs> of Disney. Phil, how about you? Do you recall? Uh, it was about last week. Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Um, it's true. Listen, <laughs> you know, I've seen a lot of there's there's Disney movies that I've seen, and there's Disney movies I just never saw until later in age. Um, how did it? Well, well, then let me ask you this: How did it resonate with you? For someone who For didn't someone grow who, up with this story, um, yeah, I, I thought it was good. I, you know, I've here's the thing: I think there's a difference if this was my first Disney movie. Versus, this is my first time with Beauty and the Beast, um, because it has all the, tr- you know, I think it's a great movie. At the same time, you know, something that we talk a lot here on Anatomy of Movie, the nostalgia, right? So even mm-hmm. though I haven't seen this movie, there's elements of nostalgia that you can go back to and be like, oh, it's sim- you know, it's it's like Aladdin, it's like Little Mermaid, it's like this, and so it puts you at that comfort level, sure, and you're just in, yeah. right. Um, versus, like I said, if I saw it for the very first time and no Disney movies. Yeah. The other the other sort of breakthrough um, in Beauty and the Beast that, again, led to Disney's father foray into things was um, this: <laughs> the movie itself, uh, it was one of the first, if not the first animated movies to incorporate digital technology going forward. The ballroom scene. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. they, they, they they set Belle and the Beast into a fully digital ballroom. I mean, the, the ceiling. Chandel- yeah. yeah, the, ce- yeah, the, sh- the, the chandelier, the ceiling. The, ceiling. the walls, maybe. Um, uh, like, look, a little bit of dopey uh, trivia, and somebody can double-check me on this, but the first movie that I recall... You know, like digital was seeping its way into special effects. You know, you could have seen it as early as Star Trek II, the Wrath of Khan with the Genesis effect and such. But when making characters digitally, um, 
there's this great movie called The Young Sherlock Holmes. Yes. Uh, which, right? Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. The Young Sherlock Holmes, mm-hmm. which had a knight jump from a stained glass window. Chris Columbus. That, uh, that, uh, yeah, Chris Columbus had to uh, uh, sword fight with. And it was, I believe... Scary as hell. Yeah, I believe, and, and again, please, somebody double check me, but I believe that that was the first movie that digitized a character, that being the uh, stained glass knight. When we get into Beauty and the Beast, that whole ballroom scene, number one, it was beautiful, mm-hmm. breathtaking, and, and it just shines out of that yellow. Iconic. Yeah. Iconic. That is an iconic yeah. scene. When you look up Beauty and the Beast, when you like actually Google it, that is the right. first image you see, is them in their ball gowns in the ballroom. Well, think dancing. about it this way, too. I mean, it, it's iconic because that's what... That, in, in, in a way, was the turning point um, where pe- where Disney started to really get behind this because they Absolutely. saw this and like oh this is good let's put more money into this you know all the things we've been talking about I mean this this thing's been plagued with uh, this, this is just basically never going to get made this this thing's just cursed and then you if you see that like oh wait this could yeah. actually yeah. be good and there's yeah. that operative word that everyone uses actually and, yeah and, <laughs> and and but then they used it you know in Lion King when you have the wildebeest the stampede of the wildebeest which mm. is done digitally oh. so they they continue to use the digital format and then of course you know this little co- company comes along called Pixar you know which Disney released but but they had no deal other than a di- P- Pixar just had a distribution deal with yeah. Disney at the time. So Disney just dis- distributed the Pixar movies. But that was the first full foray into digital technology. But Disney, at its time, was always in the forefront. You can look at a movie like The Black Hole. You can look at their movies like Tron, the original Tron. That was the first movie to fully integrate digital animation inside of a live-action movie. And when you look at Tron today... You can literally you watch that movie and go, holy crap, I can't believe that that movie was made back in the 80s. And it's been on cable. I, I own it. I watch it. It To me, it still looks fresh. And it's a wonderful, created, it's a beautifully rendered world. Going back to the animation of Beauty and the Beast, we've seen today how hand-drawn animation can work hand-in-hand with digital animation. But to me, maybe because... I'm just old-fashioned. I love the hand-drawn. And Beauty and the Beast and Little Mermaid. and They're just such... They're, they're so beautiful. I miss it. And their renderings. You know, the opening Broadway scene with Belle. You know, going through... It's such a beautiful scene. And when you match it with the music, you can't get that. Like, it's going to be hard. Like, it was so beautiful that I'm hoping that this live action... How is this going to translate? Not, so. not to say that it's like that the animation in this movie was simple or anything. Because by no means could I ever. Uh, but like it goes to show, I think that like the simple or like I feel like more story and depth is added to it. Well, mm-hmm. they, um. No you kind of you were talking about Disney and Pixar, and I, I, w- I want to dive a little bit deeper into that because just the way you know, I, uh, he, he, the, while the backgrounds could be three D in, in terms of the uh, the ballroom scene, but just the whole idea of of scanning and whatever, 
that allowed it to be digital as well because that wasn't uh, part of the process up until right. that point. Um, I mean, they termed it Computer Animation Production System CAPS. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, Marissa, you love animation. Do you want me to continue or you want to take over? Oh, well, I think <laughs> it's interesting because, you know, CAPS was, we were talking about revolutionizing right. the animation process. But that program, that software, allowed them to, for having different colors, especially the ballroom. You can definitely tell all the different colors. So the wide range of colors, as well as shading and colored lines, effects for the characters. And it just allowed the production crew to simulate multiplane effects. So like you have the foreground, you have the middle ground, you have the background. All within, and technically, animation is only 2D. Sure. So in this 2D world, you're getting like a 3 plain perspective, which was so revolutionary back then. Think about what they did. And again, go back to who framed Roger Rabbit. Yeah. Okay. Robert Zemeckis created a whole new camera system in order to capture you know, what Roger Rabbit is. So a camera can literally appear as if it's going around this character, like the the character of Jessica Rabbit. When she does... um, uh, do me when she does her torch song in the club, the Ink and Paint Club, so beautifully rendered, and she here she is amongst live character actors. When you look at Beauty and the Beast, same thing. What made it revolutionary is the way that the camera was able to sweep around our animated characters set within this world, this beautiful ballroom. And again, it hadn't been done before. It really broke a barrier. Um, and it gave, and you know, and it's one of the reasons why it gets nominated for best picture. But they were using special effects as a tool, mm-hmm. like it wasn't their means of telling the story. It was a tool to tell the story. You know what? I'm, does that make sense? Yeah, so, it was just it was so well done because, I'm, you know, just reflecting on the movie itself, I can point out like multiple moments just in the ballroom scene there there was a particular shot where you see the chandelier in the foreground right you see the two dancing in the middle ground and you see the beautiful windows in the background that's just yeah. your three multi-planes right and that's just one shot of yeah. the whole ballroom scene yeah. and i, I we, we also saw it when you know during the whole um mob scene at the end where they're walking forward and you see the the forest and the singers and the, the castle so there's just so many shots oh my god it looked beautiful especially for a film back then and you know when they were animating back in like 1990 yeah absolutely yeah and, and this movie comes out in 1991 oh here's another thing too they had three years to make the movie, one of those years was burned by like the concepts that they had before. So technically, once they made that decision to go into musical, they had two years to like which make is, this film happen, which is two years less than the normal animation production track schedule. Yeah, <laughs> can you imagine? You're like, crap, yeah. we got literally half the time. Yeah, and that was a Katzenberg thing too, because Katzenberg was very strict. And setting up deadlines and goals of achievement and making sure that those were met. The animators were like, yep, there were many, many pots, carafes, thermoses of coffee. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, late nights working on weekends uh, to get the job done. But you're right, Phil. I mean, and look at the accomplishment of what they were able to do. Well, yeah, because I was going to say there's a difference between meeting the deadline and, and, and creating a masterpiece. Because guess what? You tell me a deadline, 
I'll meet your deadline. It's going to be a piece of crap, mm-hmm. but I'll meet your deadline if you need me to. And again, I think it's a difference of times as well. The creative process, I think, back then... The word franchise? Like, I mentioned I, I rattled off a bunch of movies. It wasn't really the necessary thought process. You didn't think of doing a sequel to a movie. Roy. Huh? Say that again? If, unless you're Roy. Unless you're Roy. But, <laughs> From McDonald's. That's, no, a, that's but, my inside joke. <laughs> but... I thought you were talking Roy Disney. But no. Now I get it. The founder. Yes. <laughs> um, not a Disney film. But think about the... Again, when you think about the times in which these movies were being made, okay, think of think of somebody like Eddie Murphy. Mm-hmm. Okay. Outside of Beverly Hills Cop, I can name Coming to America, 48 Hours, Trading Places, mm-hmm. Golden Child. This guy was acting in movies. Now, again, I don't want this to come off the wrong way. It's no slight against this gentleman. He's a Boston boy. I love the guy. I think he's talented. Name me all the Chris Evans movies, theatrical movies. Captain America. Oh, Everyone's. Yeah, you got Fantastic Four. You, everything's a franchise. Yeah. So what I'm saying is actors had room to make other movies, much like Disney was making <sighs> R-rated. They were making comedies for crying out loud. They were making social satire movies, you know. And they were doing. They were. They were re-resurrecting Richard Dreyfuss's career along with Bette Midler. Hocus Pocus. Oh, I love. Okay, I know, but that's a, that's like a PG movie. But Oliver you know, and Company. Uh, Oliver yes. and Company. It's a great movie. Another animated awesome. with those animators. Yes. So when you look at the time and the creativity and and script supervision and and, and looking at and choosing scripts. Pretty Woman is another great example of look at the Julia Roberts character in that movie, and that movie's rated R. Okay, they don't make rated R movies at Disney anymore. People, they just—they're not making rated R comedies anymore because they're a factory. I'm not saying they're doing a good—they're doing a bad job at their factory, but that's where it is. I'm not sure the creative process, although under John Lasseter. I think John Lasseter has a good fix on animation. Hence, mm-hmm. we're getting movies like Frozen and Moana entangled. But I think because... that's the thing. Like back then, especially <clears throat> when they were creating this film, they weren't expecting to make no. it a franchise. They no. were making it as a one-off, isolated, yeah. strong individual film. An individual film and I'm to so stand on its own. It wasn't really franchise. To be fair, they did then end up making Beauty and the Beast Enchanted Christmas, Bell's Magical World. Those are they all did. television Christmas specials and for home video release. Yeah. They weren't they weren't done as a theatrical. That's mm-hmm. the other thing too. Yeah. So would Aladdin be the first one? The other Aladdin be the first one for Jafar's Revenge and then Prince. Return of Jafar. Well but again that didn't get released theatrically. Oh. That was home entertainment. That was home video. That's another thing that happened like 80s and 90s with, that was a boon, and this really propelled Beauty and the Beast uh, into that stratosphere, is that people were able to own the movie about a year after it came out. They were able to go into a video, uh, Suncoast Motion Picture, which I worked for for a short time. Suncoast is right? great. Suncoast, I, I worked there. Um, you were able to go in and purchase the movie. The other amazing thing that Disney did was 
on shelves for a limited time only. They created a want to, I must have. Mm. They created a must have this movie because within so many months, Disney would advertise it. Your time is running out. It is going to go into the vault. The vault. Going into the vault. It's going into the archives. We don't know how long it'll stay in there. Get your copy now. Godforsaken vault. The the, the Godforsaken vault. Now, something else. But the best part was when it would come out of the vault, too. (laughs) Oh, my God. Oh, coming out of the vault. I didn't even know that I needed that movie. It's so smart of Disney, though. As as annoying of a promotional thing it is for them, it's so smart for marketing. They wisely took advantage of the home entertainment market. Right, and they did it in they did it in a fantastic way. Now they did something else, right? Because I, I have it. Uh, I was a I was a laser disc person. I still am. I still have my player. Um, they released, and this was this was what was amazing about laser discs. Becca, you're looking at me like, yeah, what I don't the know. Hell is a laser disc? Yeah, picture picture, <laughs> picture a Blu-ray, <laughs> the size of an album. Like a vinyl record. I was thinking it was I mean, probably something on Blu-ray. <laughs> no, I know what a vinyl is. Okay. okay. I we, definitely we, know what a vinyl is. We call them records. <laughs> okay, I don't call them pieces of vinyl. It was a record. So no, picture something too. that looks like a Blu-ray, except yeah. it's that big. It's the size of a record. It's okay. the size of an album. And it, 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 um, it was a foray into digital. Uh, it was your movie. Okay, so you had a Laserdisc player. It, it actually, it, what it did for the CD, it did for movies. And what Disney did was, if you were, a, and this is why I love Laserdisc as the geek, movie geek I was, they released the New York Film Festival work in progress print of Beauty and the Beast, where it was released nowhere else. You couldn't get it on video. Uh, DVD hadn't existed yet. So the only way you could get this is if you were a Laserdisc owner. So I could see that black and white pencil sketch mixed with the color drawings that now is on every single release of Blu-ray release of Beauty and the Beast. You can get it on the 25th anniversary version, the Diamond Edition version of Beauty and the Beast. It was awesome. But again, Disney knew what the hell they had, and they would only do it with Beauty and the Beast. Which is fantastic because they knew the commodity. It was such a commodity at the time. They wanted to make people feel like they were like special and getting like some and getting something extra. No, um, I want to move into the voice cast yes. because I think we'd be remiss not to talk about um, any one of them. But let's start with the Belle of the Ball, Belle herself, Paige O'Hara. Um, now, as I understand it. <laughs> They wanted to reuse the the um, forgive me I, I forget her name but the the same actress who played um, Ariel Jodie Benson yeah that is her who is uh, Jodie Benson good that was really cool with <laughs> thanks Marissa awesome um, and who is they were looking for a woman instead of a girl as they quote it because that's uh, that, yeah, that's well, what they were looking for they were they were looking for someone um, to to. To play Belle a little bit, I guess, older in a sense, more mature. Yeah, they, they wanted the maturity, um, the voice that had maturity to it. Um, and is someone, because once they knew it was a musical, they needed someone who can actually carry the voice that can translate to the character. And I think it was great that they found Paige O'Hara um, because she was in Broadway. She did, she had that talent already, and she was in a Showboat. 
that that was her like big production that really put her into the spotlight. So she had the technical aspects to carry Belle as a voice. She was artist. compared to Judy Garland. Yeah, that's quite a big yeah. comparison. It's a big comparison. Also, I think it should be noted that it was Hal Ashman. <clears throat> Hal Ashman, uh, when he came in, he said, "We we're not going for stars here. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna cast this as a Broadway play." We're going to cast it like we would, and we're going to look at Broadway for our cast. Everyone in the cast of Beauty and the Beast had Broadway chops, had, had, had theater chops to do it. And that's how, how Ashman wanted this, because he looked at this as a, as a Broadway musical. So hiring, hiring Paige O'Hara, whose voice was... Which is the yes, exact opposite of voices. new one coming out. Right, yes. Sir. Well, the thing also, yeah. Paige, Paige O'Hara at the time, she Definitely. was 30, so she was a woman. She mm-hmm. was already of the age, and she had the actual mature voice. Yeah. yeah, and she could act. They needed people who could act and who can sing. Mm-hmm. And the beauty about animation is, like today we're sort of, in today's world, we are sort of conditioned to... Uh, when it comes to voice talent, we need to hire Look for someone younger. Well, but also star quality. You know, to to attach. I mean, so Zootopia. I mean, like so, that that list of people that's in right. Zootopia. Yeah, it's right. it's a thing that we're conditioned to do. Where again, back in the day, nobody really knew who the hell did Ariel's voice. We learned about her yeah. after the movie came out. Same thing with Pedro. Unless you were in New York and you went to Broadway. I didn't know any of these people, really. We we may have Angela Lansbury had had, had made a name for herself. She could have been outside of maybe <laughs> Robbie Benson at the time too. I mean, he he was in this hit call of a, of a movie called Ice Castles. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he had some somewhat of a following, but uh, Orbach at the time, like you might recognize in a movie, but a lot of these people. You just didn't know who they were because they came from Broadway theater. And, and the great thing is, is that Pedro Harris, she actually had to audition for this yes. role. It wasn't handed to her like, a, you know, I think a lot of people now are, um, you know, offered mm-hmm. roles. And she had to work for this as well. So she sure. she won this role fair and square. Yeah. To be fair, I, I mean, I, I really, on a side note, I wish animation was more like that because so much of the time some is, is spent sometimes of like who's that voice who is that voice yeah. I agree like, with please. you please and, and people do this to me I'm, I'm like, just because like of anatomy like who is that I'm like I don't know shut up <laughs> leave me the hell alone I'm watching the movie yeah <laughs> on the social media side of things I was like looking at um, looking up all the voices of the people of everyone last night and I was surprised that like that one, the people who did who do have social media accounts that are official right now don't have many follow don't have much following. Oh, like and, me. <laughs> and two, they aren't really like talked about. If you go and like hit their name in the search bar, right on like Twitter. Well, yeah, I think we're instance. entering a new generation. I mean, I think uh, <laughs> no, in the sense that you know now, I think like. 
I think people will see this movie, but I think now it is going to be very much a passing the torch onto this yeah. new movie that's about to come out. Yeah, yeah and we, you got to remember, like back in the '90s, like these people were casted based on their talents, not book, yes. not Which book like, ability. Not for their, it wasn't yeah. for their box office. Yeah, it wasn't yeah. for like the the ability to get people to pay tickets and get butts in the seats. It was for the people who can actually carry films and yeah. talent and characters. Yeah, I think they were more worried about if the movie could carry itself, let alone the True. actors. Yeah. No, I. But like now. Nowadays, it's like we we book like Phil was saying, we book all these A list names just to get people's in the theaters. And back then, it wasn't like that. It's to try to get box office, absolutely. Yeah, I'd be interested to see what would happen if they, if like Disney for the next live action thing had a list of people who we didn't know who they were. No. If you do that, no one's going to see it because no one wants to see people who they don't know. To be fair, the only person I want is James Earl Jones to to come back to The Lion King. That's just such, okay. yeah. that's such an iconic voice. But yeah, apart I from mean, that, I could care less. The and, and, and look, even when you look at uh, The Jungle Book, mm-hmm. okay, you had Bill Murray, uh, Scarlett Johansson, Christopher, Christopher Walken. Okay. It just, this is what we're conditioned to because the thought process being, well, the kids don't give a crap who these people are. But if we want the adults to come, you know, they want to, they, they want to be able to know that there's a, a star quality, a celebrity quality that's involved with it. Yeah. When it wasn't always that way. You know, to my recollection, and again, if somebody could, looking at Little Mermaid, um, you had Buddy Hackett. Uh, you know, Buddy Hackett was the seagull uh, hmm. uh, in that movie. I knew who Buddy Hackett was. Um, going into Beauty and the Beast, going into Lion King, you know James Earl Jones' voice at that point. But you had Iago was uh, 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 Godfrey there, who people knew of as a comedian. Um, But the biggest casting, I think, is when they went into Pocahontas and you hire Mel Gibson. Like he, at the time, probably the biggest... A lister that Disney could have brought into, yeah, into an animated movie. I mean, it was a big deal. You didn't really, I can't even tell you the name of the other people. (laughs) Um, Pocahontas. Who who were in Pocahontas. Pocahontas. Um, It's very true. Well, you also had Christian Bale was also in that film, too. you got to remember that. Yeah, but Christian Bale. Who the hell was Christian Bale? He played the, Thomas. Yeah, I get that, but you get <laughs> but, what I'm saying. Who yeah. the hell was Christian at Bale that time, at that time? People, oh, we well, had uh, Newsies out. Yeah, people like, didn't see Newsies. Yeah, no Broadway. Newsies was a big Broadway. Debate. Yeah, but they didn't know. No one went to see Newsies because of Christian Bale as the headline. No. Christian and, and Bale and Newsies. Actually, nobody went and saw <laughs> Newsies at the actors. Yeah, no one no, did. No one saw it at the actors. So. But you know, I'm just saying their first foray in getting that big A list. I mean. Mel Gibson at the time. Jesus. I mean, forget about just the Lethal Weapon movies. You know, he was doing comedies with Goldie Hawn. He was, you know, he was, he was a bonafide, he was a bonafide star at the time. And I I don't know the time period, so I'm not sure if he had made Braveheart just yet, but the guy's Uh, a bonafide star. I'll check real fast. Pokemon was 1995. Braveheart may have come out. Yeah, Braveheart. Yeah, Braveheart he already had Brave, Yeah, he had Braveheart. I think under his belt already. I guess what I'm getting at is, you know, you starring A-listers 
wasn't necessarily the priority. And when you look at a Beauty and the Beast, and even Little Mermaid to an extent, but more so Beauty, going for the Broadway talent only lends, I think, to the quality of this movie. Because I didn't care necessarily who was voicing Belle. I just knew that it made Belle more beautiful as, mm-hmm. a, as an animation. And I think, you know, having Broadway actors, singers, made the music more yeah, impactful, too. That. Because we're still singing these songs. Absolutely. Honestly, yep. I'd like to not to knock out La, La La Land because they didn't... <laughs> Yeah, here but like they didn't hire singers to sing those songs. Sure. In twenty years, those songs will literally be irrelevant. In another twenty years, the songs of Beauty and the Beast will still be relevant. Yeah. And That's they rehearsed true. as if they were on Broadway. Yeah, they rehearsed the movie as if it were a play. And think about it this way: like in, in an animation, you kind of have to go a little bit over the top, right? When you're doing a play. You have to project. You, you have, have to do it. Yeah, you have to do it for the cheap seats. last yeah. per person yeah. in the room. Yeah, so yeah. animation, because all you have is your voice to really give life into this besides the animation itself, you have to you go have to give time. it, go go for that. You have to be animated. Yeah. Yeah. And and so uh, I think there's a, there's a comparison it. there. <laughs> it took me a second. That's okay. <laughs> Sometimes my jokes come back and rerun. <laughs> uh, what were you going like to say, Becca? I cut you off. No, I was, I was laughing at that, and then I got distracted. I'm a fan of one. Thanks, <laughs> Yeah. Fair enough. No, but you're right, Phil. And, and like, there is... And who's going to know how to project? No. Better than, than Broadway people. singers. And when you have Megan and Ashman, more or less, there. Okay. How are you going to rehearse this? And how does that help your animators? How does that help your directors? Right? Again, it's this lightning in a bottle that even the producer, the, the, the Han, said, after Beauty and the Beast, the edict at Disney was, we need to release two of these a year. And they split up the team. Like that team, that full-on animated team, never worked together again. Like, Always a smart idea. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, some of the people, you know, one or two people may have worked together. Mm-hmm. But as a team, that was it. Uh, something else that was very um, telling about the, uh, about the movie as well is that when it came time for it to, uh, for it to be seen, okay, another thing that Disney did which is sort of kind of unheard of at the time, is they had 2020 follow the cast and crew around while they're making this movie. Okay, This is during the production. At the time, Disney, nobody knew what they had. Okay, And then Disney says, Disney's seeing what they like. And for the first time, they're saying the animators, as a a group, they were feeling good about the movie. They, they felt that they had magic. They felt that they were on to something. And then the execs say, you're going to take it to the New York Film Festival and show it. And they're like, the movie's not done yet. doesn't matter. We want you to He's like, no, but you don't understand. Those are just pencil sketches. And then we have some scenes like, we, how can we do that? So show it. So they took it to, to New York. And it was still in black and white pencil form mixed in with some color, mixed in with some finished animation, and it brought the house down. 
and they were watching it at I believe it was the Ziegfeld Theater um, and they as, as the directors say we were sitting in the balcony and we had a flop sweat 2020s there like our failure as easily as our success could have been recorded for posterity like and if it was a failure that's it that's done it's we're over we're never gonna have a and think about it it's it harkens back to snow white because if snow white had not been a success in playing at the carthay theater the carthay circle theater Mm -hmm. disney's career would have been done he poured everything into snow white and had it not had that 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 one premiere night at the Carthay Circle Theater, that when Gangbusters, we may not have Disney as we know of Disney today. Same thing with Beauty and the Beast. If Beauty and the Beast failed, animation for Disney may have gone a completely different route if it went anywhere at all. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well. Um, this kind of goes a little bit later in the timeline, but it has a rare cinema score of A+. So yeah. I'm sure the, the fact that you could receive it well in in the, whatever, not complete form, then yeah. I mean, yeah. That, that says something a lot about a movie, because trust mm-hmm. me, I, I've been there, and it's like, listen, if you don't understand the process, you're going to look at this and be like, what is this piece of crap? Right. But, and they explain the process. Marissa, do you have... Which versions do you have? Do you own? Well, it comes with each thing comes with the. I think they they include that version. Well, well, they 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 have. I have I a newer far, release. I don't know how DVD. far back. I don't have the Blu-ray, but I do have newer release. Um, does but it have that it, version it, on that release? It added a human again musical number okay. to it. And does it have the and New I had the film VHS. festival? No, no. Okay, because no. I know. At least the Diamond Edition and the 25th Anniversary Edition has the New York Film Festival version. Now, here's another thing, too. Let's talk about its production budget at the time, $25 million, which late 80s, early 90s, $25 million for an animated movie. That's a lot of money. And they already scrapped a couple of versions of the film. (laughs) So, you know, again... If the movie did not work, uh, animation to Disney would have taken a drastic turn. You know, so. Absolutely. Um, Should we talk about the various accolades it did win? Sure. Um, Obviously, uh, I guess let's start with Golden Globes. It was nominated for uh, Best Motion Picture, Musical, or Comedy, um, Best Original Score, and Best Original Song. Um, and it won all of those. Yeah, it won the Golden Globe Award for Best Motion Picture for Musical or Comedy, and then mm-hmm. for not just the Golden Globes, but it also for Academy Award. I was Best... getting there, but I'll let oh, you. Yeah. I'll let you take it. Okay. Well, not be good. my guest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Clever. But I'm All right. It, yeah, it won Academy Award for Best Original Score. And a best original song for its title. Yeah. It's tough to. I mean, it also had three songs nominated, um, so it's tough to lose when you <laughs> when you have yeah. three out of four nominations. T- it was also we mentioned it before nominated for best picture, which is which, the the ultimate award. And best, best picture. Yeah. What, and but best picture at a time when they didn't have ten slots to fill. So, are you curious to know what it was up against? Yes. Okay. All right. So. We already know Beauty and the Beast. It was up against Prince of Tides, uh, 
a Barbara Streisand movie, JFK, Oliver oh. Stone, uh, Kevin Costner, uh, and Bugsy, a Warren yeah. Beatty movie yeah. uh, that he directed. And the winner that year, 1991, goes to Silence of the Lambs. Jonathan Demme, uh, Jodie Foster. Okay. Obviously, now that one's best... Uh, that one, Best Director, Best Picture. Now, something that need to be said, too, is, and this is part of the reason why we now have this animated ca- uh, category. Personally, I think, if you're a movie like Beauty and the Beast, you deserve Best Picture. Yeah. You are a great picture, okay? A lot of people... Look, I'm a film geek. I'm a movie geek, okay? Some people can call me snobby, whatever, but there are a lot of people in the industry who are very snobbish mm-hmm. about what the hell is Beauty and the Beast doing in Best Picture? What the hell? Like, why? It's not. You're taking away from a real movie, okay? Those people, I say, F you too, because this is... Do you not understand the creativity and the yeah. artistry that's involved in making this film? And add to that... Look at the emotional impact that you're getting from... I would say that Beauty and the Beast, for me anyways, far outweighs Prince of Tides, JFK, and Bugsy. Okay? I don't... I'm not upset that Silence of the Lambs won. I think Silence of the Lambs is a good choice. It's still as relevant and as scary today as it was back then, but Beauty and the Beast also stands in that category where it too is a movie that has stood the test of time. And just because it's animated does not mean it's not taking away from anything. You know who took away? Viola Davis took away from supporting actor when she said that (laughs) that takes away. But But, sticking to apples to apples, you have ten nominations and you're not even using them. No. To be fair, even, the, the right. joke that wasn't used, which I found out, was it, the best picture category went to the nine movies in which Kevin Hart wasn't in. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's the way they did it. Yeah. Yes. So, but this was one, two, three, four, five. All right. So that's a compet. Five features are nominated, and those at that time in 1991 <clears throat> could be argued that those are the best pictures to nominate, but Beauty and the Beast I think is is, is deserving. But I also believe that there are animated movies that, be, that belong in best picture category, not just best animated. And I think, yeah. if, if somebody can double check my facts too, I think the next time that an animated movie fell under that category was Up. In which it was nominated oh, for oh, best, best picture, picture. Yeah. Yeah. and it, but, but it had the best animated category. Again, it's a waste of a slot because you have best animation it's not going to win best picture they're going to give it to it as the animation which i believe it won i just want to know who these people are who like who didn't think that beauty and the beast deserved it like to be nominated in that category because i would want to ask them like if they can um make a movie like that to be honest. To be fair, okay, so like, uh, let me just read off a couple other movies. Uh, Terminator 2, Judgment Day. Mm-hmm. Why that wasn't nominated is beyond, you, you mm-hmm. know, anyone. Um, but then, you know, you kind of look at the rest of the list. You have uh, Robin Hood, oh, Prince of Thieves. Videos. That didn't do so well. Point Break, Cape Fear. That's, um, yeah. Thelma well, and Louise, Boys in the Hood, Adam's Family, City Slickers, uh, Fisher King, Hook came out that year, Rocketeer. <laughs> 
Um, what about Bomb? That's actually a good movie. Well, again, <laughs> I believe a that's a rated R. Uh, a rated R um, um, Which one? What about Bomb? Touchstone. I think that was rated R. I'm not yeah, sure. Yeah, I think he plays sure. a lot of F-bombs. But, all right, well, since you're going 1991, let's take a look at the domestic grosses. Um, the number one movie of 1991 was Terminator, Terminator. 2, which I could have swore one for special effects. Yeah. Um, but $204 million. Now, here's, here's the rub, folks. <clears throat> it made $204 million on less than 2,500 theaters. And you're talking less, Judgment Day. I'm talking Terminator 2 Judgment Day. Robin yeah. Hood, Prince of Thieves was number two. With a with a with a gross of 165 million plus dollars again, 2,300 plus locations. Okay, um, Beauty and the Beast was number three, number three with 145 million dollars. You want to know what its largest um, theaters was? Not even 2,000. 1,960 theaters. Beauty and the Beast opened up, and this is a play higher per screen again. Average. Huge per screen average, but we're also talking of a time when there weren't the multiplexes of today. So we're not seeing five screens of Beauty and the Beast. You're seeing one. One screen of Beauty and the Beast at your theater. theater. So that's where you're going. You're, you're really getting a great location average on that. Now, it bested out Silence of the Lens, which a horror movie at the time... $130 million. That was the number four movie. Uh, the number five movie was City Slickers, which did uh, $124 million. Hook. 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 Your Hook, Hook did $119 million. People hated that movie. The Addams Family. The Addams Family. Such a good movie. Was, uh, <laughs> the Addams Family was number seven with 113. Sleeping with the Enemy, uh, another Julia Roberts movie, uh, 101 million. But Father that, yeah, of the Bride. That also goes to show because, you know, they, they do a lot of stats nowadays that people, or movies that gross more films have a better chance of winning Best Picture. You know, like they, they tend to go hand <clears throat> in hand with that correlation. But we see that Beauty and the Beast grossed higher than Silence of the, Lam- and Silence of the Lambs won. Yeah, I mean, it's not... I mean, when you look at Moonlight and yeah, it's gross much, compared to... You know, yeah. when you look at movies like The Artist or The Hurt Locker or even No stats. Country for Old Men. But um, the number 10 movie, it's a great movie, The Naked Gun, two and a half, The Smell of Fear. <laughs> okay, uh, 86 million. Um, you know, and that's just the top 10. But you're right, Phil. You had movies like Backdraft, Star Trek, The Undiscovered Country, uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2. Uh, great Cape movie Fear. in my book. Prince of Tides, JFK, um, Hot Shots. What about Bob? Hey, 101 Dalmatians was re-released that year. What? Um, the Last yeah. Boy Scout, great Shane Black, uh, Tony Scott movie, Doc Hollywood, Boys in the Hood, My Girl, uh, The Rocketeer, Thelma and Louise, Regarding Henry, The Fisher King. 1991, you had some really solid movies Not to go to throughout that year. Uh, many of these movies I just mentioned never had a sequel. My Girl 2 did, but Rocketeer, yeah. Thelma and Louise obviously didn't. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, Doc Hollywood didn't, but it's a great, great fish out of water story, even to today. Mm-hmm. You know, and Beauty and the Beast. Beauty and the Beast, of course, made its revival. You said you were involved. I want to know more about this. You said you were involved in many stage productions. Yeah, stage productions. Well, Beast. you know, once Beauty and the Beast, um, because <clears throat> of its success, was the first animated film to be translated to Broadway. Right. And I performed and also was on the production side of two different 
on stage productions of Beauty and the Beast that had the added scores from Mencken himself that he did after the movie, but he translated it for and composed it just for the the Broadway. Um, so there are more songs that I know of Beauty and the Beast that weren't in the film but are now on Broadway. Right. So who are you? Who are you? <laughs> oh God. Um, yes. If you guys want to look it up, I was a dish, and I was a wolf. I was one of the main wolves that helped take the beast down in the forest. You're welcome. And then, um, so that was the first production. And then uh, my second production, I was Spotlight. There you go. Uh, Becca. Hi. I forced you, which I don't know <laughs> why I had to oh, force sorry. you, to watch the musical. What did you think? Okay, I only... I- I finished mo- most of it or some of it. In... The, okay, the, well, I haven't you watched it before? Wait, what are I you talking know. about? The musical. I don't know. My the, or the theater never... person. Oh, I never you know, went. I haven't seen it. I never went. Where do you see it? Is it all she um, does is see musicals. Okay, yeah. I've seen three different Broadway versions of Becca's watching a musical right now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. So, I... I've now seen part of it. Okay. Um, What'd you think? I I like the added songs. Because, um, I mean, as I said before, like the reason I love this movie and the reason I like these types of movies in general is because of the songs. Like, I judge... Uh, you know, everyone I, hangs on to every word, oh but not in a good way. Sorry, So you haven't heard all of this song. I haven't. But, but, um, like I judge, <laughs> I judge movies like these based on the songs and I, um. Okay. I think like what Broadway does so well is that it fills in the gaps that for musical numbers and the transitional that the film itself doesn't because granted the animated film is only like an hour yeah. and 24 minutes it's and you can see like people are plotting different storylines but the musical numbers like really add more layers to the characters like home is a, an amazing song for broadway that was added to bell once she her first night in captivity at the castle she she realizes she literally just lost her freedom she sings a whole song about that um no one does it better than susan egan by the way just saying <laughs> and just a couple of weeks ago susan egan quoted me on twitter and i about died she did die um <laughs> For those who don't know who Susan Egan is, she was the first original Belle for the first production of Beauty and the Beast on Broadway. Yeah, and she owes she's me money. And AKA, she's also the voice of Megara and Hercules, also Disney. Besides that. But, like, the songs. There are so many songs that were added to make us understand the characters even more and go more in depth. And you, we learn who Monsignor Dark is. He's the person who runs the sanitarium. Um, that that puts, uh, you know, the father. The father. And you know, like, you, there's a whole song about Gaston and LeFou plotting of putting the Bell's father away. So yeah. I, crazy old Maurice. Uh, <laughs> thought it. A thought I just came up with was that um, musicals versus movies in uh, like the stage productions. I feel like songs tell the story more so going off that. Yeah, they flesh out the story way yeah. but, but, but Okay, but my argument, okay, I haven't seen the Broadway thing. Couldn't Don't worry, I got you. Um, <laughs> but I think 
even for a movie musical, whether yeah, it be yeah. whether it be Beauty and the Beast, uh, or, or or whether it be uh, My Fair Lady, or 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 uh, Music Man, uh, Nightmare Before Christmas, um, I feel that the music cinematically it has to move the, the story, story along. Yeah. along. It has to. Um, I guess too, like. You know, if you're gonna pick on La La Land, like some of the music didn't push the f- story along. It was very for the scene. But when you look at some of the musical greats, like whether it's South Pacific, or like the songs come at a time where when needed, where it's needed, and to move the story along. Now, something that they were talking about in the making of Beauty and the Beast, and why they decided to one of the reasons they decided to make it a musical was you can't put forward that kind of dialogue in straight dialogue and have it work, okay? It's going to sound silly and dopey, but under the guise of a musical, you can get away with it. So long as your music is good, you have good performances, you have good talent to sing it and belt it out, it works. But to do it straightforward, that dialogue does not work. It comes off as, as corny. It just wouldn't work. That was one of the deciding factors of making Beauty and the Beast a musical. That, and of course, you know, you have to believe that the success of The Little Mermaid, you know, which again is a musical, you know, the seaweed is always greener in somebody else's place. These songs perpetuate the plot; they move it forward. Mm-hmm. You know, our characters too go into singing and dancing, much like in Beauty and the Beast. But even your live-action musicals or Nightmare Before Christmas, you know? It- yeah, right, because you know, even in the Broadway version of Beauty and the Beast, there are musical <clears throat> score numbers that Maurice sings while he's riding, like, while he's horse riding into the the woods that lead him to the castle. Like, even the transitional moments from scene to scene to scene, there's music, there's singing right. that gets us from point A to point B that the film doesn't cover. Yeah. The producers, Mel Brooks' foray into Broadway. Right. You know, so, yeah, I mean, that's... And, I, and, and also, I understand the flip side of why people hate musicals. I mean, I get it. You know, uh, they, they hate seeing people all of a sudden break into song and dance. I think it's great. Whether it's West Side Story, uh, you know, uh, it, it they don't like it. And it's like, okay, it's just like some people don't like black and white movies. You know, stuff like that. I, it's, it's a question of taste. I don't mind me a good musical. So, so long as it doesn't bore me to tears and, you know. I love musical. Not, I think so the world like, would be a better place if people broke yeah. into song and dance. I used to do oh, that in my apartment. Me, no, some people can't sing. It would be a better place if yeah, I wrote a song and dance. Land excuse. No, 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 no. You don't want to see me singing and dance. We don't. I mean, no. Uh, after I this, I do it on absolutely a daily not. occasion. Move All right, move. folks, this is about that time to start <laughs> wrapping it up. So, as such, any final thoughts? We'll go to you, Becca Brown. Uh oh. Um. <laughs> okay. So I. Uh, trying to get to the trivia part because we're doing a trivia part. Well, I, I like I liked something I saw uh, last night um, about as far as final thoughts. So what, um, what do we got? I saw fun facts that if you like freeze the frame on Gaston's face towards the end, you, you see skulls in his eyes. 
and that if I wanted to share that. If you freeze the frame towards the end, you see skulls and Gaston's yeah. eyes. That's when he gets through. When he gets, I guess, Before pitched he off the dies, like like literally when he falls yeah, yeah. to his death. Apparently, there's. I a was frame. like, that's well, interesting. <clears throat> that's another. This is another Disney lore and legend that uh, <laughs> that, that that came about. Um, when they were, when animators were making these movies, okay, uh, things like Blu-ray, things even such as um, VHS, which you can pause, right. okay. <clears throat> People weren't thinking about this technology, right? So, uh, and again, you can look it up on Google. There's lots of lore, like in The Lion King. Yes. There is a scene where Simba, yeah, Simba, I believe it's Simba, like falls in the... Mm-hmm. He just lays down and a poof a cloud of sand comes up. And it happens so fast, but the word sex, like the animators put into the cloud. But it happens so fast, the only way that you can see it is if, if you, you, free, you pause it. Yep. Right? So all this Disney, call it sexcapades. Again, just Google it's it. Subliminal messages. Subliminal messaging. The animators were throwing in on purpose for fun because they're like, nobody's ever going to see no this. It's happening this. so fast. But then when, like, DVD came out, you could oh literally pause. Like, you could see all of the Becca's stuff. Mind is they have since, no, yeah. they have since a lot of it, like, digitally taken out. But just Google it. I just think, no, Google it's true. There's animated so many. Disney the, subliminal. I think Dad that's Marissa, <laughs> final thoughts for you. Um, I loved this film. I still love it, obviously. Uh, I have I go literally to every Beauty and the Beast production that's available towards me. I saw Beauty and the Beast in Disney World. That's how much I love this. When they were putting I was like, ah, uh, we just did a musical play on it, and but I'm going to see their version down in freaking Disney World. Um, was it yeah. fun? Oh, it was great. What are you talking about? Yes, I have it on video. Um, I love it. I love the story. I love the characters. The, the message of it. The overall visual aesthetics of it. Everything about this film was just done so right as a film to make it solid as a picture it, it stands the test of time and will be a tale as old as time I agree and um, being that you mentioned trivia do you know songs take up 25 minutes of the film and only 5 minutes or without any music score at all hmm. Interesting. really? Yeah, um, so this is according to IMDb trivia. That went yeah. um, Lumiere talking in the You know, yeah, I think Beauty and the Beast has definitely stood the test of time. I think even to today's standards, um, it's a beautiful film to behold and to watch for mm-hmm. generations. For, for generations of people, whether you're young, you're old, I, I think it's, it's just a wonderful film. I go into this live action one, I will be honest. I go into this live action movie with a little bit of trepidation. Not that I'm look, not looking forward to it. I am. I think it'll look beautiful. Thus far, Disney has done a fantastic mm-hmm. job with Cinderella, the Jungle Book. But this movie was already such a beautifully rendered film. Uh, my biggest fear is that it'll be a shot-for-shot remake. And then my question will be, well, why? Now, I already know that they've made some changes. It's, already, it's come out in the news this past week. I mm-hmm. won't say them here yeah. in case you don't... Pay attention to news. Tune into that anatomy. But, but there, there have already been some changes, which is fine. That at least shows that it's not going to be a complete shot for shot. But from what they've showed me in the trailers, it looks it like looks a shot so for finished. shot. I love, I love the talent involved in this movie. I just, it's making me wonder. Again, it goes back to creativity over the factory. 
Like, do I need to see every single movie become live action when on its own it's a classic already? So that's a question we can tackle later. Well, we'll find out uh, the week after March 17th when the new Beauty and the Beast comes out. Thank you guys for listening. Let us know your thoughts and opinions on this movie. Um, and definitely check back in for the latest one. Um, it, they'll, they'll be nice two companion pieces. That way we don't have to spend as much history talking about this one because we'll just tell you to see this episode. Um, nonetheless, thank you guys for joining us. Thanks. At the Popcorn Talk, at Dean Movie 1701 at Serafini TV, at Becca Talks TV. We're out! From producers Maria Menounos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, and the rest of the Anatomy of a Movie staff, we would like to thank you for listening and subscribing to the show. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to email or tweet us. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been Anatomy of a Movie.